morning. Uh, what a joy um, to be with you on this Lord's Day, and what a privilege, and thank you for the kind words, and just um, Mark's friendship all these years. Um, cherish him and his family and all of you, and um, so thank you for your prayers um, moving forward and, and in the past. Uh, these days, I, I think every moment with my father, with his fading memory because of Alzheimer's, and my mother's devotion to him and her sons as special and treasured, um, more so than I, unfortunately, um, wish I had more done that, treasured them more prior. Uh, despite real challenges growing up, more and more I realize in many ways how good I had it growing up. Like everyone else, I'm busy, like you. Um, yet as I spend more time with my parents, I repent that I didn't invest more time with them earlier. Before the end of last year, my mom transferred all our family photos into my care, uh, black and white photos of their upbringing in Korea, our relatives, uh, dad's army buddies, moms, close girlfriends, the church my dad got saved at, familiar faces I forgot the names to, the white plastic cup that I drank out of as a kid with a puppy face on the, on the cup, the Santa Ana apartment we lived in, the green shag carpet, the Ford Maverick we went on camping trips all over the West, the yellow kitchen appliances, bell bottoms, and the rotary phone, if you know what that is. Um, pictures of my brother and I running through um, the sprinklers in the backyard on a hot summer day. A photo with my dad um, smoking a cigarette and, and me and him laughing um, next to each other. My mom fixing my hair, birthday parties, and school events. And some of these photos are kind of like a comfortable old sweater, if you know what I mean. But many of those photos I've actually never seen or actually or recollect seeing. But with no photos, and still very vivid in my mind, are the hardships of family life. Like the constant threats of divorce as I lay in bed, unable to sleep as a fifth grader, um, with my dad sleeping on the sofa for over a year. Witnessing drunk uncle, uncles get into a fistfight. The sheriff at our front door enforcing the bank foreclosure on our home. As we packed whatever we could into our cars and left everything else behind. I remember yelling at my father that day. Blaming our circumstances on him. And feeling absolutely horrible. And later asking his forgiveness for which he was very quick to do. He was more brave and loving that day than I ever knew. As we sat down to pray for dinner at McDonald's that evening, my dad, who had the mercy of being the first and only Christian on his side of his family among 12 siblings, reminded us even in his own deep discouragement that God will surely take care of us. I remember him praying over the meal and thanking the Lord that we were together as a family and that that was more important than stuff. Both my parents came from broken homes, agonizing situations that you might only read about or see in a movie. At times, they, those moments uh, filtered into our family. But I will tell you, though I didn't have a perfect childhood, I had a wonderful one. A wonderful one. My parents sacrificed to give me an upbringing far beyond what they ever had 
let alone I as a sinner would ever deserve. But what rescued our home was Christ. What rescued our home was Christ. And because Jesus did, I was loved, supported, nurtured, guided, taught, disciplined, prayed for, protected. And in life and in ministry, I've seen the wreckage of many homes and the suffering that comes with it. And I'll tell you, what a blessing to have what I had growing up. Some of us come from difficult backgrounds. And maybe that wasn't our story, but I want to encourage us today of the blessing of being a part of the local church. Because belonging to a healthy church family is like belonging to a loving family. Not merely attending, not merely in writing, but belonging to with joy, with joy. Uh, This past January 7th was the 7th anniversary of our youngest, Kristen's adoption into our family. We, We love her so much. Sandy and I... We are incredibly blessed to be her parents. Sometimes people say, oh, she's so lucky to have you. No, we feel the exact opposite. We are blessed to have her. Toby and Piper love being her brother and sister. And I never forgot how we, you know, the day of the adoption hearing, and we're in the court, and... uh, we were calm and collected, and it wasn't until the lawyers and the judge were exchanging all the legal verbiage that had just confirmed the permanent reality that we were not just her parents functionally, but also legally. It was at that point we just lost it. We were just bawling uncontrollably. Um, because it was then... Kristen was no longer a ward of the state entrusted into our care. She became ours. And we became hers. Likewise, in the redemptive drama, our forensic justification means our family adoption. Our forensic justification means our family adoption. J.I. Packer once wrote, To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. As a Christian, I've been adopted too. And sometimes I, I, I say that to people. And uh, I say, yeah, I, I was adopted. But not maybe in the way they think. But just as profound or even more meaningful. That as a believer, we've been adopted into the fold, into the family. I not only have a father, but I belong to his family. There are so many joys we get to experience by immersing ourselves in God's kind of local church more than I could could possibly speak to and of today. In fact, this was kind of a, this is a brief uh, selection of an opening series earlier this year in OC. And I'll share five if you'll bear with me. But before that, uh, let's go to the Lord and, and ask his mercy and prayer. Let's pray. Loving Father, Abba Father, what a joy to belong to you and to one another. Thank you for the clarity of your words so that there is no room for confusion on what it means to belong to the church of Jesus Christ. Help us to be humbly ruthless and accurately understanding and applying your word without compromise. Teach us and lay hold of us by teaching us. 
that we might be changed, that we might be filled with joy, yet hungry for more joy, and not merely with good intentions that die the moment we end our service. Cause our hearts to be permanently shaped by your will so that we stand up against the increasing pressure of the mold of this world. Transform us to be the mighty people of God out of our weakness and not as spectators to be entertained and waited upon, but as servants of the Most High God to whom we gladly bow our knee, lift our gaze, and lay our lives down on the altar of worship. Engrave on our hearts that we have lost our first love of Jesus if we have lost our love for his church for whom he died. Thank you, Lord, for this local church family. Open our eyes and hearts to the priceless gift of belonging to your body, not just around the world and through all of history, but to this particular local invisible group of imperfect, set-apart believers here in Lighthouse San Jose. In Christ's name, for Christ's sake we pray. Amen. So five things. Number one, I want us to be reminded of the joyful blessing of glorious identification. Number one, the joyful blessing of glorious identification. Glorious identification. Now, I know this is not the most edifying show, but growing up, one of my favorite TV sitcoms was um, Cheers. Yeah, maybe you don't know it. Maybe that's a good thing. But it ran for, for, for 11 years on NBC from 1982 to 1993. It was ranked the 11th greatest TV show of all time by TV Guide in 2013. Not that that means anything, but I found it interesting that its finale was watched significantly. Its finale in 1993 was watched by 40% of America on the very evening that it aired. I mean, I don't think anything is watched to that extent uh, anymore. See, many people identify with this character. It's, it's a humorous sitcom, but underneath, it was actually a sad picture of a lovable group of losers who've made a bar their home away from home. And that became kind of like their functional family. It opens with a song that is pretty much synonymous with the show, Making Your Way in the World Today, right? And, you know, I won't sing it, the rest of it, but you know, it takes everything you've got, right? Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. And they said, wouldn't you like to get away? Dun, 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 dun. Um, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. And those lyrics at first hearing actually appear pretty comforting and inspiring. But if you, if I googled it, and if you look at the full ly- lyrics, they're actually pretty dark and depressing. And they express the sad superficiality of quasi-community that people are always searching for. And the worldly hope which is but wishful thinking and temporary escape. Whereas Christian hope is certainty only delayed a when and not an if that encourages us to be faithful. Like you, when I came to know the Lord, it was out of spiritual darkness that I was raised to newness of life. Like you, I became like a newborn baby, craving the milk of the word of God that I might grow up in my salvation. So soon I discovered as a young Christian that I was also a living stone as part of a house. That I was loved in Christ's love flock. That I'm a member of Christ's body. 
And also for me, best of all, that I now belong to a family. The household of God with real brothers and sisters. Now today I I won't be doing an exposition of uh, uh, one text uh, like I typically do. But um, we'll be looking at a couple different ones. But if you turn to the opening chapter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. 1 Peter, verse 1, or verse 3. 1 Peter 1, 3, it declares, Peter declares, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Note the plural reality, us. Not just you or me, us. So that becoming a Christian was never ultimately what I did for me personally, but what happened to us corporately. Go to the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 9, 1 Peter 2, 9. And what's it say? We are told, Peter says, but you, and we can say that's plural, you all, you all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people... For God's own possession, that so that you may all proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you all have received mercy. That's who we are. Amen? The wealthy, the famous, the accomplished, the connected, they got nothing on the gift and treasure of belonging to Christ and His church. You couldn't belong to anything more glorious, rich, lasting, joy-giving, true, sanctifying, beautiful, and miraculous. Yes, it may not feel that way always in church life or look that way in church life. But it is. Even through that messy, divisive group at Corinth, Apostle Paul opens his letter to them with the truth about who they were despite how they behaved. He writes to the church of God that, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those who are in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I and mean, if you understand the first letter to Corinth and the situation at Corinth, it's, it's a pretty astounding thing that he says, makes such a statement about this church. Really about any church, local church. Let me add, Ephesians 1, the, the opening chapter, trumpets this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as He chose us, in him before the foundation of the world that we, corporate, plural, should be holy and blameless in love. He predestined us for adoption to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. Now, emphasizing that plural a lot and I hope you understand. So we have the undeserved privilege and joy of belonging to the longest existing institution there is on earth. Having been planned in eternity past, continuing into eternity future. I think we take for granted what a joy it is to be a part of a church. 
It's in our local church, though, that we get to be a part of God's family. This is not merely theoretical or theological. It is mercy monumental. We, not the enemies of the cross of Christ, have been gifted the joy of knowing the head of the church is our elder brother, creator of all things, sovereign God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Impressive as governments, armies, corporations, empires, even today fringe movements have been, none can claim Christ as their leader and protector. No organization is as diverse, made up of every tribe, nation, tongue, and language. We belong to the one institution which Christ promised to actively bless and build. No matter the discouragements we may experience inside of our church, and no matter the threats that come from outside the church. Our mighty king declared in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not, shall not prevail against it. So the church, we know, is not a club or organization that we join to come and go as we please, but it is a family and kingdom that we are born into. See, not only did God ordain that we would be born into physical families, but that we would be born again or even born above into a spiritual family. See, and when you were born into a physical family, you couldn't choose your relatives, could you? Now, some of us, including me, would like to choose my, uh, my relatives, but, and I think many of them would have gotten rid of me too um, a long time ago if they could. But see, it's an utterly amazing thing to be a part of God's family. It should be amazing that any one of us belongs at all. Imagine what it would, for a moment, what it would be like not to belong to Christ's church. What would it be be like not to belong to Christ's church? I don't think that takes much imagination because we know. Right? We knew what it was like. But let me say this. It should feel as terrible as not belonging to Christ. Only let's reverse it, brother, and let's rejoice in how exactly the opposite of terrible it is that we do belong. So it's, it, it's strange that some prefer invisibility rather than identification. They prefer invisibility rather than identification. Family and name only, Sunday only, minimal involvement only. Strange that many will cough uncomfortably around the coffee pot in the break room when their co-workers ask them, Hey, what did you do over the weekend? It's like we don't want to be found out. They're ashamed of Christ, the Savior of our souls, the greatest, most loving, powerful, interesting being in the universe. Now, if we met a celebrity, if we caught a fly ball at a Giants game, or if you're an A's fan at an A's game, if you got engaged, I mean, you wouldn't hesitate to tell everyone. That we couldn't belong to any more, any group more glorious than Christ's family. Listen, family is not about shared blood, it's about shared belonging. Family is not about shared blood, but about shared belonging. Dear Lighthouse San Jose, cherish belonging to Him. Cherish belonging to Him. And, and cherish belonging to one another. Number two. I want us to be reminded of the joyful blessing of biblical instruction. Number two, the joyful blessing of biblical instruction. Instruction. 
I mean, we're Christians because other Christians be, before us were faithful stewards of the gospel and loving disciple makers. In the body of Christ, it's not only that we need fellowship, that we also need instruction. Jesus commanded, we know, Matthew 28, that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he says what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And in turn, Jesus gave gifts to the church, not just gifts of teaching, but gifted men. Our elders, especially pastor teachers. Turn, turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, the fourth chapter of Ephesians, verse 11. Ephesians 4, verse 11. Now, early in the chapter, after Paul had reminded us of the unity that we have in Christ, that was actually gifted, it's not invented nor earned by us, but he says we are to eagerly maintain the gift of unity he has given us. Paul then tells us in verse 11, and he says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, one office. Verse 12, or what? The equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the, of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, then he says, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, so he gave pastor teachers with their fellow elders to teach, equip, shepherd, watch over God's flock as men who must give an account. They are to equip the saints, though, for what, Paul says. Equip every one of us for what? For the work of ministry. So every one of us is called to ministry. We know that. Now, sadly, I I, I read a survey recently. It said in the survey that 85% of American evangelicals say they do not believe Jesus is the only way to salvation. That's saddening. 85%, I don't know the the measure of how they conducted this study, but it's still alarming. Despite John 14.6, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Despite Acts 4.12, that there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Despite the clarity of the rest of Scripture. Amos 8.11 laments, there is a famine in the land, not a a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Why do I say this? What a joy and blessing you and I should thank God for if you have a church that actually teaches the Bible. What a joy. That's not true everywhere. You're part of a church that actually teaches the Bible. Is at least committed to faithfully teaching the Bible. So you can know it. 
and love it and be built up by it and obey it and be ministered by it and minister to others with it. The good shepherd is also a good general who prepares his people for battle. Nowhere in the New Testament is the reality of Satan and the enemies of the cross of Christ and demon-inspired ideologies ever dismissed. We are involved in spiritual warfare. Yes, God is in control, so we have a peace that surpasses all understanding. We do. But because God is in control, judgment is also coming. It's one thing to fall in battle, yet it's another thing to let others down in that battle. By being lazy, by pretending persecution is not on our horizon. History proves that Jesus promised it. Therefore, we must prepare ourselves for it even as we go forward despite it. Thus, it is imperative that we belong to a church where its pastors heed, 2 Timothy 4, 2-4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of living the dead, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, reprove, Rebuke and exhort with complete patience and and teaching. For the time is coming when people would not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's not an old reality. When we belong to a solid church, not a perfect church, we should rejoice. Should rejoice. And what a joy also to actually have our own Bibles. Because many generations of believers couldn't ever say that to the extent that we do. Very simple question, let me ask. Then how do we learn our Bibles? How do we learn our Bibles? Well, of course, we, we can read it for ourselves. But we also have those God gave us to help us learn it. We don't do it only on our own. I think that's dangerous. One of the most dangerous places you can go is the local Christian bookstore and pick up any book. Here in a local church, under the care of godly men and godly fellow believers, we're rooted in sound doctrine and common purpose and mission by being a part of God's church. We sing the same songs, confess the same faith, share the same bread and cup. We are fed spiritual encouragement and we have godliness actually modeled for us in flesh and blood. We get the joy of learning together regarding all aspects required for life and godliness through local men prepared and charged with that very task. There is joy in being under men in leadership who care for us and who will lay their lives down for us ultimately Because they are who God wants to be here. Who by the grace of God meet higher qualifications, standards of qualifications than any professional, than any president anywhere. There is a joy, right, in plunging into the depths of the Bible together. I mean, as good as personal Bible study is, as our quiet times are, isn't it so much better and sweeter when we're accountable sharing its gold together? Feasting on doctrinal, life-transforming truth. Number three. I want us to be reminded of the joyful blessing of mutual edification. The joyful blessing of mutual edification. Edification. It's in the context of a church family we get to enjoy the meaningful privilege of service. Of service. Here we find our home, our place, 
We discover our gifts. We serve people in ways that bear fruit long after we have lived. And by each of us doing our part, we're contributing to the overall ministry of the body. There are no superfluous body parts and there are no superfluous Christians. Hebrews 10, 24-25 commands us to gather, to provoke one another to love and good works. If we are tempted to distance ourselves in any way from active fellowship because it's inconvenient, let me suggest that we have forgotten both Christ and what we need to bring His church. Similar to 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12 urges us, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Then Paul says, let us use them. Let us use them. So we each have been given a gift or gifts to bring to others. So the church is only complete in some respect if you bring them and you, as Paul says, use them. God made you a part of His body that needs you, to fun- needs, needs you to function well. Tim Challies wrote, When you neglect to meet God's people, you deny them the gifts He has given you. Gifts that bring Him glory when you use them for the good of others. And let me also speak to the flip side of this. The flip side is that we also forget what we need. And I don't really mean that in a selfish way. But there, there is an important implication. God has gifted others as well. So that you and I are incomplete and flailing without our local church. God has not so gifted you alone so that you can thrive and grow without the gifts He has given other brethren. You're a part of the body, but you're just a small part of it. An important part, but a small part So there's none of this dumb entitlement that says that I'm a gift to the church. No, rather, it's the church is a gift to me. Imagine for a moment if your liver, right, right, struck struck out on its own, right, seceded from the union. I mean, you won't do well. It won't do well, neither will you. How arrogant and stuck up does one have to be to neglect church fellowship? You, 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 you not just deny others of your gifts and yourself of their gifts, but you deny God of His glory by them. You forget what you bring, what you need, and who you worship. You forget what you bring, what you need, and who you worship. There is a joyful blessing in belonging to and serving a church. And this is not to say that I'm going to minimize sometimes the difficulties of church life. That's not what I'm giving attention to. Sometimes we don't know those joys if we're fixated on what we're not getting and who's not giving it to us. We ought to take the position of a servant. And why? Why? Why do we experience all this? Why do we want to serve a church of course ultimately for Christ's glory gratitude for his grace but we share hope comfort sanctification stories we witness souls that we prayed for together and shared the gospel with come to Christ we share sorrows we share laughter if we're in the hospital for surgery or because of a car accident or to give birth isn't it a joy our church family and not just the natural family visits 
when we hear God's word and hear someone in the congregation say amen, and there is a joy and a hearty agreement, even if we didn't verbalize it with them. There is a joy when we sing loudly how great and good our God is. There is a joy of having people who bring God's kind of care to us in our own suffering, like Jesus who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Carrying one another's burdens, I get the joy of being with people who understand I am a fellow sinner saved by grace. They are neither surprised nor are they taken aback when I, as a brother, am not perfect or even sin horribly. So I have, a, I have the joy of being able to honestly confess my sins, to receive help in my time of need, because we are family. And again, maybe our family experience wasn't that, but it, this is where it can be like that. I have the joy that I alone can't ever ruin the church, even if I sadly hinder it. Now that's not a license to sin, but it's freedom to love. The church's existence nor her unity did not originate with me nor you, nor ultimately it depends on you or me. Rather, we need her. Matt Merker at Nine Marks writes, This is the people whom Christ Jesus bought with his own blood. This is the people who have committed to care for me, put up with my faults, and point me to Christ again and again. So if you're more committed to yourself than to your spouse, to your own selfish expectations than your vows, how do you think that's going to go? 50% of marriages still, they say, end up in divorce. And think so much, of a, so much of church life in America actually mirrors that. Either in excuse, neglect, or in church hopping, doesn't it? Either you believe that you're better than everyone else and entitled to better, or that no one is good enough for you as you journey through your imaginary kingdom and bitter, no one is carrying you on poles, fanning you, and feeding you grapes. Instead of being surprised and overwhelmed by the grace of God that you and I even belong, some of us can be radically committed to our own silly vision of church life than what Christ actually revealed in this book. And for whom He died for. Sandy and I once had a real estate agent who was always busy with her wealthy clients living on the Newport Ghost. Beggars couldn't be choosers, so we ended up with um, a foreclosure, right? With holes in the walls and feces in the carpet all over. And it was, it was bad. It was, it was ugly. But we fixed it and the mercy of that and we it provided us a home. But before that, once we waited four days to hear back from her, um, we wanted to put an offer on a dumpy condo that sold for actually less than we were willing to offer. In the God's providence, I'm glad it actually didn't work out. But at the time, it didn't inspire any kind of confidence that we meant much to her. Why? Because she always had better people to be with and better places to go. The church is an ecclesia, a gathering, with a biblical emphasis on normally being together, normally, and actually being involved in each other's lives. Again, the pandemic challenged that, and, and, and we have to understand everyone's in different circumstances, and not to judge or condemn. And I'm excited, I'm thrilled, that churches. And the, and the rest of our society is beginning to open up more and more. 
But what I want to address is, is, it's not so much those circumstances. It's the attitude. It's not that we have to, but that we get to. No, we have to, but we get to be a part of the church. Number four, the joyful blessing of restorative protection. The joyful blessing of restorative protection. It's a loving and helpful thing when our family tells us it might be better that we become a plumber or a physician than to try out for American Idol, right? I mean, especially if after they hear us and we sing like a wet dog with a muzzle on it. I mean, I'm sometimes amazed that the family doesn't say anything, right? And they get embarrassed on national TV. I, I admire their courage to do it and go for it. That, that's cool. But you want that honesty, right? Or if you're actually pretty good, you want their encouragement to at least try. Try. What's it going to hurt? And in the church, you got some men who think God is calling them to pastoral ministry or to church leadership, but in the course of having the opportunity to teach and have the overall gifts and character observe, it's grace that God has either confirmed or not confirmed that desire. Why? Through the counsel of godly men and the affirmation of his people. But on an even more serious note, in the church we have the joy of having safeguards against hell. Because here the unregenerate churchgoer is exposed to his or her self-deception and to the power of the gospel. I would imagine many of us came to faith after being in a church for many years. There is a joy in being a part of that church that protects me from ruining myself. Matthew 18, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Just between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have what? Gained. Gained your brother. Hebrews 3, 12-14, the writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by what? The deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Alistair Begg writes, The local church is the only place, the only proper place for discipline. Discipline should take place in the house, in the home. There is nothing more embarrassing than spending time in a family that is undisciplined. No table manners, no respect for mom and dad, no waiting on each other. Language that is unkind and untrue and unhelpful. And it all goes around and you sit in the house and it is absolute chaos. And you say to yourself, why doesn't dad do something here? Why doesn't somebody exercise some kind of restraint or some kind of intervention? End quote, Alistair Begg says. I've been in that uncomfortable situation. I remember visiting um, a beloved family on a mission trip. And here I'm sitting over dinner with them and their middle school son is hitting the mom on her head He's verbally berating dad. And I really didn't know what to do as a guest. It was very uncomfortable. It was wrong. Now let me say, if you didn't do anything wrong, then you don't need to be afraid, especially if God is whom you fear. But why do people not like church discipline? Let me suggest two. Number one is because they misunderstand it. They wrongly think it's a witch hunt or to get rid of some trouble, some people. No, it's, that, that's an unloving and gross misunderstanding. Certainly there are churches that are 
abusing people in the use of church discipline. But I don't think most churches who take the Bible seriously conduct themselves in that manner. But I think second, or third, the second reason and the most common reason why people don't like church discipline is because they don't want anyone telling them what they don't want to hear. They're not interested in holiness. We don't want to be a part of an abusive church quick to condemn. And there are those churches that are legalistic and harsh. They're not safe havens. But neither should we be quick to turn a blind eye. Most restorative correction normally never reaches a public level. We never hear about it. That's the way it should be. Because it was addressed in private, one-on-one, in love. Never needing to go outside that circle as we show grace and we receive grace in addressing sin. But let me suggest, sometimes it never reaches the notice of the church. Because in some places, the leaders and members lack the love to address it. And just sort of tolerate it. They're waiting for someone else to deal with it. So instead of going to them, they gossip about them. Instead of going to them, they gossip about them. Many leaders never confront sin because they are more concerned about themselves, about being liked, and not losing members. All behind a facade of pseudo-grace and poser gentleness. Too many church leaders and members want to shepherd from the cheap seats. Never getting up front and close with the excuse of blaming someone's immaturity. Now, it's not wrong that a four-year-old can't read yet. That's not wrong. That's not a sin. But it's quite another thing for him to hit his sister repeatedly after being warned. That's not immaturity. That's sin. It's one thing to understand all couples argue and that peacemaking will often occur without us and we don't need to get involved and be nosy. But it's another thing for a spouse to physically abuse his wife and kids. That's not immaturity. That's criminal. It's one thing to sweep dust under a rug. It's another to broom an old banana or raw chicken under it. I know. Right? If your child is running into a busy street, you don't mind. You say, oh, please, please, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't go into the street. And you say, stop, son. Don't go into the street. You tackle him if you have to. Why? Because it's a matter of life and death. Yet why would we ever ignore gross, unrepentant sin? Unrepentance is the key word. Galatians 6, 1-2 urges, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore. That's the key word. Restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What you, we seek to woo him or win her. We Hoping God's kindness, your kindness, my kindness, will lead them to repentance. So as people who love one another, we're not self-righteously eager to confront. Rather, we are eager to restore. To restore. The question is why? Because we take sin seriously and we take people we love seriously. 
It's not then to mind our own business when a marriage is going down the drain and heading toward divorce or a sister is dating a non-believer. It's not to turn a blind eye to waywardness, immorality, and compromise in the household of God. It's not to stand pat when someone is in the process of ruining themselves, about to make a fool of themselves in public and destroy their own family. We first appeal privately and maybe multiple times over weeks, maybe months. Brother, it's wrong. It's not going to make you happy. Let me help you. Let me encourage you. Let me walk alongside you. You have hope. God loves you and I love you. We should be eager to participate in that kind of rescue operation. I I personally know the aftermath of sinful living in my own life. I didn't want the pursuit of my pastor and my fellow Christians. I initially tried to run and hide and, and I first resented them for it. But I also knew in my heart that they were right and that I knew that they loved me. And I'm glad they didn't give up on me and, I, and, and leave me to myself even when I had given up on them. Yes, people will try to escape us, but they will not escape God and His Word. If, if they leave, we love them. We leave the door open. We entrust them to God. But it's like a cruel amputation. The body lives on But the member might die. I don't know how many times as a pastor I've wept. Over the departure of somebody who is living in sin. Yet it's part of why the church was given. Why the family was given. Not just to help us keep us on the straight and narrow. But to keep us in the fold of the good shepherd. From the devil's schemes and the lure of his lies. From our own heart's deceptions. From the roots of bitterness that might end up defiling all. By wooing us repeatedly to grace upon grace upon grace. James 5, 19-20, James writes, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. There is a joy, unspeakable joy, when the prodigal is found. Do we not know that as believers? But let me add, it's not just heartache turned into joy for the prodigal, but for the family also. But also for the family. It's a, it's a picture of our own gospel salvation, is it not? When I was in elementary school, I once ran away from home. I don't remember why. I think I felt I was a man or, or something, or I was upset with the decision of my parents. But I didn't have a cloth to pack my vittles, bundle it and tie it to a wooden stick like Huckleberry Finn. Instead, I loaded up my corduroy Jansport backpack with my Boba Fett action figure, my BB gun, my red Swiss army pocket knife, a box of matches, a windbreaker, one PB&J sandwich, one Capri Sun, and my entire life savings, $10.43 from my piggy bank. I remember telling my brother, Brian, who was, I think, starting first grade, And I said, Brian, you've been a good brother to me. And one day you will understand when you become a man like me. Why are you guys laughing? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Tell mom and dad I love them and not to worry about me and I'll call in a week. He started to cry. So I just reached in the pantry, grabbed a bag of potato chips, turned on the TV and to cartoons and I slipped out of the house. Left him all alone by himself. We were latchkey kids, so mom and dad were both working, you know, so we were on our own during the summer. 
And so I took my bike, I rode out proudly my newfound freedom, the wind in my hair with the future that is all mine. And five hours later, three hours later, I sat down to eat my lunch at a park. And I saw a family having this great time together. And then I looked into my foolish backpack, and the 43 cents left after blowing the rest on arcade games at the local bowling alley. And I became sad like a prodigal among pigs. And so this self-proclaimed man was like Dorothy, crying, I want to go home, I want to go home. And so with tears in my eyes, I pedaled home like a rocket, ready to run into the arms of my loving parents. And the minute I opened the door, my mom yelled at me for leaving my brother home alone. I never told her that I ran away from home. Not exactly, I didn't exactly run away from home. I'm glad my brother is still alive, too. My brother was asleep on the sofa, covered in potato chips. What is the point of all this? The point is this. Imagine if you ran away from home and nobody at all cared that you did. Imagine if you ran away from home and nobody cared that you did. We can't force people back. And if they're in a good church somewhere else, praise God. I rejoice in that. It's not about us. It's about Christ. It's about loving God and loving people. Brothers and sisters, in this church doesn't mean acquaintances. It means family. Granted, in any church, we may not know everyone well. That's okay. But you are family. You are God's family. And you're my family. So we've seen the joyful blessing of identification, of instruction, of edification, of protection, and fifth and final, the joyful blessing of corporate affection. The joyful blessing of corporate affection. Affection. Finally, it's in the context of the local church family that God has made special provision for the praise of His people. And I say praise rather than worship because the Bible in passages like Romans 12.1 states that our entire lives are living sacrifices of worship. The totality of our lives. Not just a church service, but our work, our rest, our raising our kids, our choosing patience when we feel angry. Is the overflow of our worship. It's only in the local gathering where we get to do Ephesians 5, 19-20. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 16-17 would follow along in that parallel. Church singing is about Matthew 22, 37-39. It's about, church singing is about loving God and loving others. It's not entertainment. It's exaltation of God and edification of one another. It's not about me or you. It's about God and it's about us. Praise is not what I get out of it personally, but what we give out corporately. It's about what God is doing in the whole church, not about my being comfortable or having my ego fed or having all my preferences met. We can't love ourselves and love others. That's impossible. Week after week, we are preparing for the one great choir in which we're all participating at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we all fall down before the throne and worship Jesus. Sometimes I sing praises to the Lord with my guitar in my bedroom or with the family at the dinner table. I sing in my car, sometimes in preparing a sermon. But it's possible for me to sing for the enjoyment of the singing, but not the enjoyment of the one I'm supposed to be singing to. 
if you know what I mean. It's possible for you and I to sing for the enjoyment of the singing, but not for the enjoyment of the one we are singing to. That's why the best praise is always the sacrifice of praise given to him from the depth of our heart, is it not? The world has no right to tell us what is essential. Every church member is an essential worker. Corporate praise is essential. Imagine if we never gathered to praise as much as the most intimate private moments of praise that can lift us upward. It will never compare to what we've been united for. Imagine the day you got into the school of your choice. Imagine the day that she said yes. Recall whenever something wonderful happened to you or for someone else that you love. Imagine if you couldn't share that joy together. You have to share it. Why? Because the joy is incomplete otherwise. Because the joy is incomplete otherwise. We alone believe and long for what is to come. We will be what Revelation describes. One day we'll be there. Only we're not waiting until that day. We don't have to wait for that joy. We are praising Him right now in our homes, in our hearts, on our commutes, in our pursuit of reconciliation, in our serving difficult customers, in trusting Him, and especially as a church together on the Lord's Day. Singing is part of our worship. It's not about merely shared feelings that's shallow. It's about shared affection that's supernatural. Salvation commences, continues, and concludes with worship and praise. Salvation commences, continues, and concludes with worship and praise. Let me conclude by reading what Puritan David Clarkson wrote in 1696, uh, the incomparable joy of praising God together as a church. He says, The Lord engages himself to let it forth, as it were, a stream of his quickening presence to every particular person that fears him. But when these particulars join together to worship God, then these several streams are united and they meet in one. So that the presence of God, which was enjoyed in private, which was but only a stream, in public becomes a mighty river, a river that makes glad the city of God. Let's pray. Father, what a joy and privilege and blessing and necessity to belong to, to belong to, and not merely attend Christ's church. We're reminded of when Paul said that to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord would be better, would be better by far. But that he would remain on earth if the Lord wills for the progress and joy of Christ's church. For the progress and joy of Christ's church. He'd rather stay for his church. Encourage us about our belonging. Thank you for the family of God everywhere. So thank you for this church. Not a perfect church, but this wonderful, God-loving, people-loving church. We long for many more to belong as your gospel is preached. And if any are here or listening online have not come to know you yet, we pray that you would open their eyes that they too would know the joy of belonging. May the joy of your people here shine brightly to our watching world for the sake of the lost and to the glory of our Savior. In Christ's name, for Christ's glory and honor we pray. Amen.
I want to be a part of Christ's um, church, and um, I hope 